Chapter 12. Does everyone believe in the Trinity? It is almost impossible to draw any real conclusions even from the Gospel of John regarding the dogma of the Trinity. That's from Ladue and his book Trinity Guide to the Trinity. In speaking of Jesus Christ, many Trinitarians call him God the Son. However, the Scriptures never call Jesus God the Son, but rather the Son of God. These two phrases are in no way interchangeable. The latter is biblical truth, while the former is a theological invention. That's from Robert Carden's book, One God, The Unfinished Reformation. On the pre-existence question, one can at least accept the pre-existence of the eternal word or wisdom of God, which, or should it be who, became incarnate in Jesus. But whether any New Testament writer believed in his separate conscious existence as a, quote, second divine person is not so clear. That's from a quotation in a letter written to me by F.F. F. Bruce, in 1981. Christianity, in the course of the Gentile mission, had changed into another religion. The church had forgotten or refused to know what Jesus had actually taught. That's from E.F. Scott in his book The Kingdom of God in the New Testament. He was reflecting on how the apocalyptic future kingdom of God in the teaching of Jesus has been altered by the church. A similar change is found in the church's doctrine of God as Trinity. We opened an earlier chapter by laying out the unclear thinking of many churchgoers when they contemplate who God and Jesus are. Most hold these inconsistent ideas as an unresolved logical problem. For example, number one, Jesus Christ is God. Number two, God is our Heavenly Father. Number three, Jesus Christ is not our Heavenly Father. And number four, there are not two gods. End of quotation. Yet, has the ordinary reader ever considered how to reconcile these four separate opinions of his together. It probably has not occurred to him that they are inconsistent with one another. The average Englishman has not troubled himself with this matter. That's from Richard Armstrong's book, The Trinity and the Incarnation. The Christian so-called Academy, which seems to have little influence on popular evangelical theology, is often candid in its admission that the Trinity, as a definition of God, is foreign to the first century Christians. This opinion is widely held in so-called liberal circles, and especially since the time of the Enlightenment. Evangelicals, rather than admit to a large dose of traditional thinking in their received systems, persist with very strained attempts 
to force the Trinity into the New Testament and in some extreme cases even into the Hebrew Bible. The sheer contradiction found amongst writers of various schools should cause the reader to investigate as to who is telling the truth. Popular commentary writer William Barclay expresses complete clarity when it comes to his denial that Jesus is Yahweh. I quote from William Barclay, Nowhere does the New Testament identify Jesus with God. That's from his book, A Spiritual Autobiography. John Stott, a prominent evangelical, thinks otherwise. He says the transfer of God titles and God texts from Yahweh to Jesus identifies Jesus as God. End of quotation. But he also says it's true that it is nowhere recorded in Jesus' teaching that he declared unambiguously, I am God. Those quotations are from John Stott's book, The Authentic Jesus. The verdict of history. Many historians of dogma frankly admit to a post-biblical defection from New Testament teaching. Things went terribly wrong in the centuries following the death of the apostles. The following quotations from leading experts tell their own story. Quotation. In the year 317, a new contention arose in Egypt with consequences of a pernicious nature. The subject of this fatal controversy, which kindled such deplorable divisions throughout the Christian world, was the doctrine of the three persons in the Godhead, a doctrine which in the three preceding centuries had happily escaped the vain curiosity of human researches. As from J.L. Mosheim, Institutes of Ecclesiastical History. Another quotation. When we look back through the long ages of the doctrine of the Trinity's reign, we shall perceive that few doctrines have produced more unmixed evil. As from Andrews Norton, Statement of Reasons for Not Believing the Doctrines of the Trinitarians. Christological doctrine has never in practice been derived simply by way of logical inference from the statements of Scripture. The Church has not usually in practice, whatever it may have claimed to be doing in theory, based its Christology exclusively on the witness of the New Testament. That's from Morris Wiles in his book The Remaking of Christian Doctrine. Another quotation, the Greeks distorted the concept of Jesus' legal agency to ontological identity, creating an illogical set of creeds and doctrines to cause confusion and terror for later generations of Christians. That's from Professor G.W. Buchanan in correspondence with me in 1994. Another quotation, because the Trinity is such an important part of later Christian doctrine, it is striking that the term does not appear in the New Testament. 
Likewise, the developed concept of three co-equal partners in the Godhead found in later creedal formulations cannot be clearly detected within the confines of the canon. That's from the article on the Trinity in the Oxford Companion to the Bible. Another quotation. How shall we determine the nature of the distinction between the God who became man and the God who did not become man without destroying the unity of God on the one hand or interfering with Christology on the other? Neither the Council of Nicaea nor the Church Fathers of the 4th century satisfactorily answered this question. That's from J. A. Dorner in his book History of the Development of the Doctrine of the Person of Christ. The adoption of a non-biblical phrase at Nicaea constituted a landmark in the growth of dogma. The Trinity is true since the Church, the Universal Church, speaking by its bishops, says so, though the Bible does not. We have a formula, but what does that formula contain? No child of the Church dare seek an answer. That's from the article on dogma and dogmatic theology in the Encyclopedia Britannica of 1936. Some celebrated evangelical commentary is frank in its concession to Unitarianism. Quote, only one, the Father, can absolutely be termed the only true God, not at the same time Christ, who is not even in 1 John 5.20, where we read of the true God, Jesus, in unity with the Father, works as his commissioner, John 10.30, and is his representative, as we read in John 14, verse 9 and 10. Professor C.K. Barrett's highly acclaimed commentary on John explains John 17.3 in an obviously Unitarian sense. The God whom to know is to have eternal life is the only being who may properly be so described. He and it must follow, he alone is truly theos. That's from the commentary then, the Gospel according to St. John. Famous names in the field of Christological studies appear to grant our point that the Trinity is not a New Testament doctrine. No responsible New Testament scholar would claim that the doctrine of the Trinity was taught by Jesus, or preached by the earliest Christians, or consciously held by any writer in the New Testament. That's from Professor A. T. Hansen and his book, The Image of the Invisible God. It must be admitted by everyone who has the rudiments of an historical sense that the doctrine of the Trinity, as a doctrine, formed no part of the original message. St. Paul knew it not and would have been unable to understand the meaning of the terms used in the theological formula on which the Church ultimately agreed. That's from 
W. R. Matthews in his book, God in Christian Experience. The propositions constitutive of the dogma of the Trinity were not drawn directly from the New Testament and could not be expressed in New Testament terms. They were the products of reason speculating on a revelation to faith. They were only formed through centuries of effort, only elaborated by the aid of the conceptions and formulated in the terms of Greek and Roman metaphysics. That's from the Encyclopedia Britannica, 9th edition. This criticism of Orthodox Christology is not the property of a few people only. At present, in 1911, I do not know of a single professor of evangelical theology in Germany who wants to reproduce the old Orthodox formulae. All learned Protestant theologians in Germany, even if they do not do so with the same emphasis, really admit unanimously that the Orthodox Christology does not do justice to the truly human life of Jesus and the Orthodox doctrine of the two natures in Christ cannot be retained in its traditional form. All our systematic theologians are seeking new paths in their Christology. That's a quotation from Friedrich Lufs, What is the Truth About Jesus Christ? Son of God language. Biblical studies have happily moved away from the untenable notion that Son of God is equivalent to God the Son. The crux of the matter lies in how we understand the term Son of God and the questions that it poses about the relation of Jesus to the one whom he called Father. One may well ask whether the term, quote, Son of God is in and of itself a divine title at all. Certainly there are many instances in biblical language where it is definitely not a designation of deity. Adam is called the Son of God in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, Luke 3.38, Hosea 11 verse 1, which is cited in Matthew 2 verse 15, alludes to the nation of Israel as God's Son. In Wisdom 2 verse 18, the righteous man is called God's Son. Nathan's prophecy to David contains God's promise to David's successor. Quote, I will be his father, he shall be my son. 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 and compare with that Psalm 89 verses 26 and 27. This passage also occurs in a collection of testimonies at Qumran, 4Q Flor 10 and following indicating that the messianic significance of this prophecy was a matter of continuing speculation in first century Judaism. In Psalm 2 verse 7, the anointed king is addressed at his installation, and you'll find this quoted in Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1.5, 1 
Hebrews 5, verse 5, the application of Psalm 2, 7 there is actually to the begetting of Jesus in Mary. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Cited in Acts 13, 33. And again in Hebrews 1, verses 5. Hebrews 5, verse 5. And compare with that Second Peter 1, 17. This passage is the source of the identification of Jesus with God's Son, call or the voice from heaven, after his baptism. Mark 1, verse 11, Matthew 3, verse 17, Luke 3, verse 22, and compare with that John 1, verse 34. The voice also identifies Jesus with the chosen servant in whom God delights. This is found in Isaiah 42, verse 1, and compare also Matthew 12, verses 18 to 21. In the light of these passages, in their context, the title Son of God is not in itself a designation of personal deity or an expression of metaphysical distinctions within the Godhead. Indeed, to be a, quote, Son of God, one has to be a being who is not God. It's a designation for a creature indicating a special relationship with God, and in particular, it denotes God's representative, God's vice-regent. It's a designation of kingship, identifying the king as God's son. Therefore, I take the application of the title Son of God at Jesus' baptism to be an affirmation of Jesus as God's son-king in virtue of his anointing by the Spirit. Likewise, C.F.D. Moore comments on the trial scene. In Mark 14, verse 61, the high priest's words, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? are presumably understood by the evangelist as a question about a messianic claim. The title expresses the intimate relationship which Jesus had through the Spirit with the Father as the Father's anointed representative, which is depicted in the Gospel narratives culminating in his death and the cry of dereliction, quote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46, and Mark 15, verse 34. I believe that this is the meaning that we should attach to the term, quote, Son of God, at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, Mark 1, verse 1. Nor can we read the theology of later centuries into the testimony of the centurion at the foot of the cross. Quote, Truly this man was a son of God, Mark 15, verse 39, Matthew 27, verse 54, and compare Luke chapter 23, verse 47. Certainly this man was innocent. In my view, the term Son of God ultimately converges on the term image of God, which is to be understood as God's representative, the one in whom God's Spirit dwells and who is given stewardship and authority to act on God's behalf. The designation of Jesus as, quote, Son of God in power 
according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, in Romans 1 verse 4, is a reaffirmation of that son kingship with divine authority insofar as by the resurrection the Spirit has overturned the negative verdict of the Sanhedrin in condemning Jesus to death as a blasphemer who sought to lead Israel astray. It seems to me to be a fundamental mistake to treat statements in the fourth gospel about the Son and his relationship with the Father as expressions of inner Trinitarian relationships. But this kind of systematic misreading of the fourth gospel seems to underlie much of social Trinitarian thinking. Thus, statements like, quote, I and the Father are one, in John 10, verse 30, and those about the mutual indwelling of Jesus and the Father, in John 10, 38, John 14, 10 to 11, and verse 20, and John 17, verses 21 and 23, are taken, by some, to be statements about inner relations of the persons so-called of the Trinity. However, the fourth gospel itself does not require such a reading. When read in context, these statements are evidently statements about Jesus' relationship with the Father on earth. It's a common but patent misreading of the opening of John's Gospel to read it as if it said, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was God. John 1 verse 1. What has happened here is the substitution of Son for Word. The Greek, of course, there is Logos. And thereby the Son is made a member of the Godhead which existed from the beginning. But if we follow carefully the thought of John's prologue, it is the Word that pre-existed eternally with God and is God. That's from Dr. Colin Brown's article, Trinity and Incarnation, in the theological journal Ex Audi II of 1991. The Trinity without biblical foundation. It is customary for students of the Bible to refer to Jesus as God and to insist that belief in a trinity of three co-equal, co-eternal persons in the one God is the hallmark of true faith. Many recognized Bible scholars do not think, however, that Jesus is called God in a Trinitarian sense in the Scriptures. Distinguished experts on the Bible, past and present, maintain that the doctrine of a tripersonal God is nowhere taught in Scripture. A popular recent discussion of Christianity states that the doctrine of the Trinity is, quote, unquestionably one of the most difficult Bible doctrines to understand. That's from Ron Rhodes' book, The Heart of Christianity. One of the most perplexing questions facing Trinitarians is the fact that in Mark 13, Verse 32, Jesus confessed ignorance as the Son, that's to say the Son of God, about the second coming. 
How can Jesus be God if he is not all-knowing? Why indeed did the Father of Jesus have to give his risen and glorified Son a revelation if Jesus knows all things? See Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. Can Trinitarians provide honest answers to these questions? In the Bible and in Jewish tradition, God knows everything, including the future. Isaiah 46, verse 10, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 7, and compare with that 4th Ezra 4, verse 51 and 52, and 2nd Baruch chapter 21, verse 8. Human beings and angels are not in possession of such total knowledge. Mark 13, verse 32, demonstrably excludes Jesus from the category of absolute deity and was therefore an embarrassment to post-biblical Christians. Subsequent attempts to explain this saying to mean that Jesus did not make known what in fact he really knew have failed to make any sense of the Son of God's confessed ignorance. Saying that he spoke in his human nature, somehow suppressing what he really knew in his divine nature, merely illustrates the struggle of commentators to fit the later, quote, God the Son, into the pages of Scripture where he does not belong. In no text did Jesus ever say he was God, in Mark 10, verse 18, he distinguished between himself and God, who alone is absolutely good. Why, if Jesus is God, did he isolate his Father as the only one who is absolutely good? The fair way to investigate the question as to who is the supreme God in the Bible is to start with that 75% of our Bibles we call the Old Testament. These were the scriptures on which Jesus had been nourished. One very simple fact does not often receive the attention it deserves. The Old Testament describes God with singular pronouns many thousands of times. Singular pronouns, of course, tell us that God is a single divine individual. What if you picked up a book in which the father of a family was described by the singular pronouns I, me, and him hundreds of times? If that same father then said, quote, let us take a vacation, would you immediately think that the father was really more than one person? Or would you think that the father was inviting others to join him, a single individual, in an activity. Amazingly, when some Bible readers arrive at Genesis 1.26 and read that God said, quote, let us make, they leap to the conclusion that God is more than one person. There is no logical reason for this. Scripture describes God as I, he, him, me, repeatedly. When on a very rare occasion God says, let us 
It means that God, who is one person, involves others with him. How is it that Bible readers imagine let us to mean let us three? The verse says nothing about three members of a Godhead, nothing about a Son and Holy Spirit. Where does God ever address his own spirit? The helpful note in the NIV Study Bible on Genesis 1.26 points out that God involved his angels in some way with creation. Both man and angels bear a resemblance to God himself. In a similar, quote, let us statement, and there are only four of such let us statements in the Bible, we find in Isaiah 6, verse 8, who will go for us? The address is obviously to attendant angelic beings. From the word biblical commentary, quote, from a team of international scholars, a showcase of the best in evangelical critical scholarship, comes a plain statement that the idea that Genesis 1.26 even hints at the Trinity is false. It is now universally admitted that this foreshadowing of the Trinity was not what the plural meant to the original author. When angels do appear in the Old Testament, they are frequently described as men, for example, in Genesis 18, verse 2. And in fact, the use of the singular verb create in Genesis 1.27 does in fact suggest that God worked alone in the creation of mankind. Let us create man should therefore be regarded as a divine announcement to the heavenly court, drawing the angelic host's attention to the master stroke of creation, that's to say man, as Job chapter 38 verses 4 and 7 puts it, quote, when I laid the foundations of the earth, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Compare with that Luke 2 verses 13 to 14. We find this quotation in Gordon J. Wenham's Word Biblical Commentary on Genesis, chapters 1 to 15. Truth seekers should make a conscious effort not to start their investigation with the assumption that the Trinity is a true biblical teaching. They will begin with an open mind and look for clear evidence. Is there such evidence in the Old Testament? Many have long abandoned Genesis 1.26 as any indication of plurality in God. There is no shred of proof for the Trinity in Genesis 1 verse 26 or in the plural form Elohim. Nor is there any evidence for the Trinity in the word, quote, one in the famous Jewish and Christian creed Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, cited by Jesus as a Christian in Mark 12, verse 29. The most basic creed says, quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The lexicons of Hebrew tell us correctly that one means one single. Echad 
the Hebrew word for one, is used about 970 times, and there's never any doubt at all that it means, quote, one, not two or more. In the central creed of Israel and of Jesus, the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, is described as one Lord, that's to say one single Lord. One single Lord means one person, not three. Opposition to the Trinity is not confined to so-called cults. That's a public myth. Sir Isaac Newton, John Locke, and John Milton have this in common. They are recognized as among the most intelligent minds of the 17th century. All of them objected strongly to the doctrine of the Trinity. These men cannot just be dismissed as ill-educated or prejudiced. They had very good reasons for what they believed and defended it in writing. All three were vigorous anti-Trinitarians. So also was Thomas Jefferson, who examined the Trinitarian question carefully in the light of the Bible. How many know that Harvard University at one time expressed non-Trinitarian views? Increasing numbers of contemporary biblical scholars recognize that the Trinity is a post-biblical development. Apparently the question about God can provoke violent emotion. It is good to be reminded that one of the cruelest episodes in church history occurred when the reformer John Calvin used the strong arm of the Catholic Church to burn at the stake a brilliant linguist, physician and geographer, as well as Bible expert Michael Servetus. For a fine account of this horrible cruelty in support of the Trinitarian cause, see Marion Hiller's book, The Case of Michael Servetus, The Turning Point in the Struggle for Freedom of Conscience. The burning of others over an issue of doctrine is absolutely forbidden by the Bible and may cause some wonder about the spirit which drives such persecuting zeal over the definition of who God is. Review and summary of key considerations. The doctrine of the Trinity depends on a very unbiblical idea that the Son was, quote, eternally begotten. The Trinity claims that the Son of God had no beginning. He is an eternal, uncreated being. Without an eternally begotten Son, so-called, there is no Trinity. Does the Bible, in fact, support the idea that the Son of God was, quote, begotten eternally? Some authorities will expect the public to swallow a considerable piece of misinformation. They will say that there is, quote, a conversation between two members of the Godhead in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, verse 1. That remark about a conversation between two members of the Godhead is cited in Patrick Navas in his book, Divine Truth or Human Tradition. Truth seekers should look carefully at these two key passages. Psalm 2, verse 7, 
reports the one God, Yahweh, the all caps L-O-R-D, as addressing the Son, the Messiah. The Father says, today I have begotten you. To beget means to become a father of a child. Today obviously means today. Today is not eternity. There's no basis at all for the Trinity in Psalm 2 verse 7. But without an eternally begotten Son, there can be no Trinity. Psalm 2 verse 7 contradicts the Trinity and tells us that there was a time before the begetting of the Son. Luke one thirty-five tells us when the Son was begotten. It was some 2,000 years ago in Palestine. When the power of God came over Mary, the Son of God came into existence as the begotten Son of the Father. Consult for this Luke 1, verse 35, and Matthew 1, verse 20, where we read of the Son begotten, that's to say, fathered in Mary. Psalm 110, verse 3, in the Septuagint version, reads, quote, From the womb before the day star I have begotten you. Our Old Testament reads differently, but many Hebrew manuscripts, including the Peshitta, the Syriac, of the 2nd century A.D., and the Hebrew text used by the church father, Rigen, maintain a version which agrees with the Septuagint. Is it possible that the wise men looked for a star to mark the birth of the Messiah on the basis of this prophecy in Psalm 110, verse 3? Before the day star, those words, could be taken in a spatial sense, meaning in the presence of the star. If that is so, the Magi expected to find the birthplace of the Messiah marked by a special star. Matthew 2 verse 9. A very fascinating repointing of some of the Hebrew manuscripts of Psalm 110 verse 3 has occurred. By repointing is meant the placing of a set of new vowels with the consonants, which alters the meaning of the text. The Hebrew from which our Bibles are translated reads, From the womb of the morning, like dew, your youth will come to you, as in the New Revised Standard Version. Your youth translates the set of Hebrew consonants, a Y, an L, a D, a T, a C, and an H. With one set of vowels, this gives us, quote, your youth. But the same consonants with altered vowels give us, quote, I have begotten you. For confirmation of these facts, you can see Leslie C. Allen in the Word Biblical Commentary on Psalms 101 to 150. That very phrase is found in all the Hebrew manuscripts of Psalm 2 verse 7, this day I have begotten you. Because the Septuagint reads, quote, from the womb before the morning star, I have begotten you, 
this may well be the originally correct version, and if so, it provides another key reference to the begetting of the Son in history. It is certainly clear that Psalm 110 provides no information at all about an eternally begotten Son. This is an invention of post-biblical church fathers and it diverts attention from the historical begetting or coming into existence of the messianic Son of God. There is definitely no conversation between members of the Godhead in Psalm 110 verse 1. In that psalm, the Lord, Yahweh, all capitals L-O-R-D, speaks to, quote, my Lord. The Lord in question, the second Lord that is, is not the Lord Yahweh, but the Hebrew word Adoni, my Lord, with lowercase l. Adoni, in all of its 195 occurrences in the Old Testament, means not God, but a human or occasionally angelic superior. There's another word for God, Adonai, which refers to God in all of its 449 occurrences. Adonai and Adoni show us the biblical distinction between God and man. The Messiah in Psalm 110 verse 1 is addressed by a human and not a divine title. That is why Paul wrote, There is one God, the Father, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Messiah Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. Jesus is the Lord Messiah of Luke 2 verse 11, Matthew 16, 16, and not the Lord God. The Evidence of Standard Authorities The following testimonies from reputable standard authorities show that the claim that Jesus is God and that the Bible teaches a Trinitarian Godhead is often more an exercise in propaganda than actual fact. While much popular Christianity continues to deal harshly with non-Trinitarians, the latter can take comfort from the reflection of saner and sounder minds, both evangelical and otherwise. The following statements appear in the writings of distinguished experts in the field of Bible study. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible, and it did not find a place formally in the theology of the Church till the 4th century. That's from the Illustrated Bible Dictionary. The Trinity is not directly and immediately the Word of God. That's from the New Catholic Encyclopedia. In Scripture, there is as yet no single term by which the three divine persons are denoted together. The word trias, of which the Latin trinitas is a translation, is found first in Theophilus of Antioch about A.D. 180. Afterwards, it appears in its Latin form of Trinitas in Tertullian. 
That information is found in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Hasty conclusions cannot be drawn from usage because Tertullian does not apply the words which were later applied to Trinitarianism to Trinitarian theology. That's from Michael O'Carroll's book, Trinitas, a theological encyclopedia of the Holy Trinity. Is the Trinity in the Old Testament? There is in the Old Testament no indication of interior distinctions in the Godhead. It's an anachronism to find either the doctrine of incarnation with a capital I or that of the Trinity in its pages. See, for example, the Hastings Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics of 1913. Even to see in the Old Testament suggestions or foreshadowings or veiled signs of the Trinity of Persons is to go beyond the words and intent of the sacred writers. That's from Edmund Fortman's book, The Triune God. The Old Testament is strictly monotheistic. God is a single personal being. The idea that a trinity is to be found there is utterly without foundation. There is no break between the Old Testament and the New. The monotheistic tradition is continued. Jesus was a Jew, trained by Jewish parents in the Old Testament scriptures. His teaching was Jewish to the core, a new gospel indeed, but not a new theology. And he accepted as his own belief the great text of Jewish monotheism, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. You find that in L. L. Payne's book, A Critical History of the Evolution of Trinitarianism. The Old Testament can scarcely be used as authority for the existence of distinctions within the Godhead. The use of, quote, us, by the divine speaker in Genesis 1, 26, Genesis 3, verse 22, and Genesis 11, verse 7, is strange, but is perhaps due to his consciousness of being surrounded by other beings of a loftier order than men. Isaiah 6, verse 8. That's in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible. From Philo onward, Jewish commentators have generally held that the plural, Genesis 1, verse 26, let us make man, is used because God is addressing his heavenly court. That's to say the angels. Compare Isaiah 6, verse 8. You can find that in Gordon Wenham's Word Biblical Commentary on Genesis chapters 1 to 15. From the epistle of Barnabas and Justin Martyr, who saw the plural as a reference to Christ, Christians have traditionally seen this verse as adumbrating the Trinity. It is now universally admitted that this was not 
what the plural meant to the original author. Again, that's from Gordon Wenham's Word Biblical Commentary. Is the Trinity in the New Testament? I quote, No apostle would have dreamed of thinking that there are three divine persons. That quotation is from Emil Brunner in his The Christian Doctrine of God. Another quotation, Theologians agree that the New Testament also does not contain an explicit doctrine of the Trinity. That's from the Encyclopedia of Religion. Another quotation, the New Testament writers give us no formal or formulated doctrine of the Trinity, no explicit teaching that in one God there are three equal divine persons. Nowhere do we find any Trinitarian doctrine of three distinct subjects of divine life and activity in the same Godhead. That's in Edmund Fortman's book, The Triune God. Another quotation. Neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine appears in the New Testament. That's from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Another quotation. As far as the New Testament is concerned, one does not find in it an actual doctrine of the Trinity. That's from Bernard Loza, A Short History of Christian Doctrine. Another quotation. The New Testament does not contain the developed doctrine of the Trinity. That's from the New International Dictionary of the New Testament Theology. Another quotation. The Bible lacks the express declaration that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are of equal essence. Again, from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, quoting Karl Barth. An increasingly pretentious intellectual speculation on the Trinity was built up on the basis of the originally straightforward triadic creedal statements, although there are many triadic statements on Father, Son, and Spirit in the New Testament, neither in John's Gospel nor in the later Apostles' Creed do we find any properly Trinitarian doctrine of a God in three persons. That's from Hans Kung in his book On Being a Christian. Another quotation, Jesus Christ never mentioned such a phenomenon and nowhere in the New Testament does the word Trinity appear. The idea was only adopted by the church 300 years after the death of our Lord. That statement's from Arthur Weigel, The Paganism in Our Christianity. Now the quotation, Primitive Christianity did not have an explicit doctrine of the Trinity, such as was subsequently elaborated in the creeds. That's from the New International Dictionary of the New Testament Theology. Another quotation, the early Christians, however, did not at first think of applying the Trinity idea to their own faith. They paid their devotions to God, the Father, and to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and they recognized the Holy Spirit. But there was no thought of these three being an actual trinity 
co-equal and united in one. That's from Arthur Weigel, The Paganism in Our Christianity. Another quotation. At first, the Christian faith was not Trinitarian. It was not so in the apostolic and sub-apostolic ages as reflected in the New Testament and other early Christian writings. That's from the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics. The formulation, one God in three persons, was not solidly established, certainly not fully assimilated into Christian life and its profession of faith prior to the end of the fourth century. Among the apostolic fathers, there had been nothing even remotely approaching such a mentality or perspective as from the New Catholic Encyclopedia. Fourth century Trinitarianism did not reflect accurately early Christian teaching regarding the nature of God. It was, on the contrary, a deviation from this teaching. The Encyclopedia Americana. The New Testament gives no inkling of the teaching of Chalcedon. That council not only reformulated in other language the New Testament data about Jesus' constitution, but also reconceptualized it in the light of the current Greek philosophical thinking. And that reconceptualization and reformulation go well beyond the New Testament data. That's from Joseph Fitzmaier, A Christological Catechism. Does the word Elohim, God in Hebrew, imply that there's more than one person in the Godhead? Quote, the fanciful idea that Elohim referred to the trinity of persons in the Godhead hardly finds now a supporter among scholars. It is either what grammarians call the plural of majesty, or it denotes the fullness of divine strength, the sum of the powers displayed by God. That quotation is from William Smith, A Dictionary of the Bible. It is exegesis of a mischievous, if pious, sort that would discover the doctrine of the Trinity in the plural form Elohim. That's from the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics. Another quotation. Elohim must rather be explained as an intensive plural denoting greatness and majesty. End of quotation from the American Journal of Semitic Language and Literature. Early dogmaticians were of the opinion that so essential a doctrine as that of the Trinity could not have been unknown to the men of the Old Testament. However, no modern theologian can longer maintain such a view. Only an inaccurate exegesis which overlooks the more immediate grounds of interpretation can see references to the Trinity in the plural form of the divine name Elohim, the use of the plural in Genesis 1.26, or such liturgical phrases of three members as the Aaronic blessing 
of Numbers 6, verses 24 to 26, and the Trisagion of Isaiah 6, verse 3. That's from the New Schaff Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge. The plural form of the name of God, Elohim, in the Hebrew Scriptures, has often been adduced as proof of the plurality of persons in the Godhead. Such use of Scripture will not be likely to advance the interests of truth or be profitable for doctrine. The plural of Elohim may just as well designate a multiplicity of divine potentialities in the deity as three personal distinctions. Or it may be explained as the plural of majesty and excellency. Such forms of expression are susceptible of too many explanations to be used as valid proof texts of the Trinity. And a quotation from Milton Terry's book, Biblical Hermeneutics.